This is Gene Hardy, and you're listening to Talking Blues. You started with music really early, like at age nine. Correct? Yeah, well, I mean, there was always music in the house. Uh, that was the thing. My mom's from Newfoundland, and she was just always playing Newfie records and dancing in the living room. Right. And my my father played the violin, and uh, and he sang. And so music was always a completely normal part of the house. Music was like eating dinner. It was something that happened all the time. They weren't professionals. They just, my mother didn't play anything. She just loved it right. to death. And my my father, he grew up in the Depression, and he actually sang for the nuns in Quebec. He used to make money for them doing that. Wow. Yeah. And so he played the violin by ear. And I uh, so went in grade four. Um, they were offering music lessons in the school in Victoria and through the school system. And I had a violin already, so they allowed me to start a year earlier than the other kids. And uh, the following year, I took up the saxophone. So I did the two concurrently until I got into university. So what, what made you decide to pick up the saxophone? My mother liked Freddie Gardner, so she liked the idea of me playing the saxophone. <laughs> and actually, when it came time to, to pick an instrument, actually in the band class, like they've got, you know, trumpets and flutes and, you know, clarinets and and saxophones and things to play. And I tried to play all of the instruments. And the only one that I could get a sound out of was the saxophone. So my mother got her wish. I presume you were musically inclined. Were you? Like, were you? Did you have national talent? Well, I I had a, a defining moment um, when I was about seven. I was visiting uh, my family in Newfoundland. And we were staying at in St. John's for a night at my mom's best friend's house. And she lived with her mom. And her mom was a piano teacher. And uh, so one afternoon, I'm sitting there, and she invites me to sit up at the piano. And I don't know anything about the piano. And she takes my index finger and puts it on middle C and pushes my finger down. And there's this... You know, it was like a giant old upright, grand kind of situation in in a front living room of a house, right? Right. And I push the I push down the button with her help, and it goes boing. And I looked at her, and she looks at me, and she said, "You did that. Do you want to do it again?" It's like, "Yes, please." <laughs> I must I must have been about six or seven when this happened, and. Um, so I did it again, and this incredible sound came out of this giant box with me moving my my index finger. Right. And it was one of those great moments where, you know, somebody empowers you with or shows you that you have, you know, some kind of ability to control something in the world, that you, you can operate something, and you can make something that, that uh, is part of the space, you know? And then... I think in the same year I was with my folks and we went to go visit this old guy. He lived across the street from the duck pond and he was blind and he was, um, 
he played the violin. And I remember him sitting in his chair and starting to play the violin. And I, I, I could see him and his eyes were kind of rolling into the back of his head and he was leaning back and I was witnessing this thing that was happening when he was playing the violin. And all I could think of was like, Oh my God, I, I want that. Like, I remember, I distinctly remember this being little and watching this going on and going, I want that. And it was, it was the first time I'd ever seen rapture and that stuck with me. And so when I, when I first started playing instruments, like having a chance to play the violin and then play the saxophone, I kind of, I kind of got that right away that it was kind of like I could connect with making a sound and deriving pleasure from the resonance. So the so fact that I was able to make a decision about something and to like to point to point the thing in a particular direction and it would go that way, you know, like a race car. Wow. That's yeah, great. I, it, 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 yeah. And I mean, that hasn't changed. I mean, technically I don't think I've, my mission statement really hasn't changed in about what, 48 years. <laughs> yeah. I'm st- and I, and I'm definitely, I'm definitely doing the same thing that I've been doing for the last 40 years. Sorry. Like that has not changed. I, this is my 40th year in show business. Okay. Explain that thing that you've been doing. Can you quantify that? What is that yeah. thing? Um, in a very particular way, actually, when I was 14, uh, there was this restaurant in, in Victoria. It's still going. It's called Pagliacci's. It's on Broad Street. Uh, nothing's changed there either, except now the owner's son runs the place instead of the owner. And when I was 14, myself and a piano player by the name of Miles Black, Miles is a, a piano player of some note in Vancouver. Miles was a year behind me. And so when I was 14 and Miles was 13, we saw that Pagliacci's in the first year that they were open was having a talent night. And we had learned three songs when we were at our, um, our high school. Our, uh, our junior high school. And we decided to go down there and play the three songs that we knew with our pals. And, you know, so before there, before us, there was a guy telling jokes and there was uh, another person who recited some poetry. And I think literally there was somebody who was juggling. And then we got up there on like the house piano and my saxophone and our drummer, Evan, and I can't remember who the bass player was. That always happens, right? <laughs> and um, we played the three songs that we knew. And uh, the owner, this guy, Howie Siegel, comes running up and he goes, that's it. There's no more talent night. <laughs> <laughs> and I looked at Miles and I, I said, dude, we just, we just ruined talent night. And he goes, these guys are going to be here every Monday. <laughs> wow. And... Yeah, and I, I tapped him on the shoulder and I said, "Mr. Siegel, we we only know three songs," and he says, "You're going to learn a lot of songs." And it was like, so starting that week, every day after school, we would meet over at the drummer's house and learn tunes. So we learned enough songs the following week to repeat our set once. So we played two sets and we 
and I think we got paid 35 bucks each and we got dinner and it was funny because like I guess about a month in like I mean my, my dad would drive me to the gig and like we you know our parents would be dropping us off like we were going to soccer except <laughs> we were going to a gig and I so we'd get there and um it kind of it kind of set the bar for what it was going to be like from now on. So here's the criteria. Here's the checklist when I go to a gig. I'm playing music with my friends. I'm somebody in the kitchen is going to make me something that isn't on the menu. <laughs> um, the, the room is full of friends, either friends I haven't met yet. Mm-hmm. or or friends that are there uh, to support me. Um, there's going to be a bunch of pretty girls. There's, um, and it, if, if those, if the, if, if those boxes aren't all checked, oh yeah. And somebody pays me at the end of the night. Right. I knew there was something else. <laughs> important but but honestly like that it's it's that's kind of so secondary to the to the rest of those things if i can't tick all those boxes the gig kind of comes up short but you know you you sort of expectations kind of become you know the self-fulfilling prophecy right so i mean that became my my style sheet that became my operating manual was what i learned at paliachi's and did it become that immediately? Like, did you know? Well, I, so I wound up playing there like every Monday. We had a house, I had a house gig when I was 14. Yeah. And um, I wound up starting uh, about three or four years later. I was playing with all these other bands in town guys who were like 10 years older than me, you know, so guys who were like 25 who were like, they had a band, they had it together. And so I was playing in a ska band and I was playing in a, a band where the guy was writing all original material. And some of these places would play at Paliachi's and some of these places would play at other nightclubs. And then I don't know what possessed me to do this, but at 17 or 18, I decided that I was going to put together um, an all-star band. So I went around to every guy in town. There was like the distribution of badass players per band was kind of like one. <laughs> so I went to, I went to the, the baddest guy in each band. And I said, would you be in a band where you'd never have to lift equipment and you'd always make, I can't remember what I guaranteed them now, like 150 bucks or something. Uh, you'd make 150 bucks and there'd be one rehearsal and I, I I basically laid it out kind of the same thing that I say to people when I'm hiring them now <laughs> this is what I mean like nothing's changed and so I put I put together um, an R&B show band called Custom Deluxe that wound up getting like uh, rap parties for um, you know movie movie productions and was doing things at the uh, like big parties at the yacht club and we did like a uh, like giant street dances, and so and I mean, so when I left town, 
1986, I, I was kind of already doing the thing. I was booking stuff. I was book, I was designing posters. I was booking people. I was picking set lists. I was, uh, I was managing band dynamics, all this stuff kind of was already happening in Victoria. And so when I, when I moved to Toronto, it was sort of an experiment to see if it was me or if it was the town that I was living in. Is it that I'm, this place is so small that I, you know, Okay. I'm, I'm the big fish in the small pond. Is that so? That conjures you know, so. up three questions for me. One is okay. the first three songs that you played. Do you remember what they were? I mean, I, am I am I correct to assume that they would be jazz tunes, or was it something else? With the combo, yeah. Oh, I would imagine it's maybe stuff that I'm still playing. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, we had a thing called the Real Book. The real book is a is a book uh, uh, is a fake book that jazz musicians have, and it's got skeletal outlines of songs, and um, basic chord changes. Right, and I mean, but even that part of it was you know, to get a real book back then, in like 1979, you had to go, you had to know who to talk to, and you had to go to the music, you had to go to the piano store. So you had went to Allison Piano, which was like a place that refinished pianos and sold, you know, old pianos. And he was the real book dealer. He was the guy that you had. I mean, but it was like buying drugs, <laughs> and and it cost a fortune. Like a real book cost seventy five dollars, which was you know that was like three hundred dollars. Right. So I I gathered up my money from three gigs, and I went to um the the uh, Allison piano and I said hi I'd like to buy a real book and I think the guy was kind of giving I think he appreciated the sense of theater that he was perhaps giving me and so he wanted to know who sent me (laughs) but I mean it's I mean a real book was a violation of copyright right so it's a bunch of all these charts famously made by Steve Swallow actually it's his handwriting apparently Hmm. and uh so yeah, and so it's this giant photocopied book. It was like an inch and a half thick, and it's full of jazz tunes. And um, we probably would have first songs we would have played were "Don't Get Around Much Anymore," right? Satin Doll, and I'd say Sugar or Wave. Yeah, so jazz tunes. Right. Was jazz a I presume it's a big thing in your life, but I know you play other things, and you also talked about being in an R&B band. Um, What were you listening to back then? I listened to a lot of jazz, and it's funny because there was another sort of turning point. This is, like, in Victoria, like every place else, uh, around 1979, 1980, is when the whole R&B resurgence thing started happening, right? And every beer commercial was, like, Junior Walker's Shotgun, right, and like, and the Blues Brothers movie came out, and so like all those artists started enjoying a bit of a renaissance, you know, like, you know, Aretha was back, and um, Matt Guitar Murphy, and yeah. you know, Booker T and the MGs, and all the music that they had created in the '60s. I I was kind of a one kind of generation behind the big chill crowd, right, but 
I was riding, I was able to kind of ride on their coattail. So I was kind of, I was always the kid. So as these people were in their 20s and 30s, remembering what it was like in the late 60s, well, you know, I was five in 1960, or I was four in 1969. So I don't remember Woodstock, right. but all those people did. Uh, a lot of the people that I played music with either remembered it, and a few of them were at Woodstock. <laughs> so I'm getting to hang out with these people who have, they played all this music the first time around, and it's them getting to get back into that music. I'm getting turned on to this music, but I'm still kind of a, a jazz kid, and I was, and I had been going to university as a violinist, as a classical violinist. Okay, so that's what I was going to ask you. You went to the Victoria Conservatory of Music and UVic for music. Um, how much yeah, of that I, was violin? How much of that was saxophone? Oh, it was 100% classical music, 100% violin. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I've had absolutely zero formal training on the saxophone. How much does your violin it's, training? inform your saxophone playing any oh I, I i think that playing in an orchestra being part of a giant organism uh and playing chamber music right um yeah it was i think that actually i think that changed um or that really um shaped my perspective on things being part of a, a larger larger organism realizing that your part is kind of essential to what's going on uh, you know and there's a certain amount of there's a gentle art to staying in your lane right um, like in the in the orchestra one of the one of the first things you learn is uh, that you know just from a job security standpoint if you get lost as long as your bow is going in the same direction as everybody else <laughs> no one will know so Nobody in the audience will know, right. and it's quite likely that nobody in the orchestra will know. But if your bow is going in the opposite direction of everybody else, it's like, oh, yeah, not him. So, you know, there's all those, a lot of the little tricks that you learn in the orchestra pit or in the in an orchestra, not just, you know, that sort of fudging thing, but also um, like real sort of musical skills, life skills. They definitely helped me as a saxophone player, although uh, it feels like I learned the stuff academically in university, but I understood what those things really meant as I began to play the saxophone. I really grasped what those concepts were, uh, whether it was, you know, like if me taking a conducting class and the purpose behind physically landing all the shapes when you're when you're drawing um, a shape to conduct an orchestra, right? And that kind of precision and that kind of physicality when I was conducting actually informed me about things when I'm playing the saxophone, because they were. I learned things about music. I didn't learn things about a violin per se. Right. Did you ever consider f going? the violin classical music route more seriously? That was my intention originally. Okay. Um, and then I, after being up there for a year, it just felt really stiff. 
and it felt and uh, also there was um this is before Nigel Kennedy kind of came along with his Stradivarius and was playing Hendrix right. on his Stradivarius. So there was a, a real, uh, really st- stark uh, line drawn between church and state. And so I would show up at the music faculty with my saxophone on my back because I had a gig that night. And I'd get a look on from people like, what are you, what are you bringing that in here for? <laughs> And so I kind of realized it was like, okay, so I'm going to hang, I'm going to have to hang out with you people all the time. So I kind of realized, I think I know where my tribe is. I think I know where I'm going to wind up. And so after a year of university, um, I kind of put the, the violin under my bed and kind of became quite earnestly ensconced in the saxophone arts. There are classical pieces for the saxophone, though, are they not? Oh, absolutely. Some of the most beautiful music you'll hear is is actually a saxophone, like small ensemble saxophone stuff. It sounds like a string quartet. Right. The saxophone is actually, it's basically a marching band stringed instrument. Like, it, that, that's kind of its function. Like, it, my tenor saxophone is a marching band cello. The alto saxophone is a marching band violin. Right. And if you hear... Um, real practitioners of those instruments in that idiom, in that in that uh, genre of music, you'll you'll hear it. It's, I mean, they're going for that kind of tonality. It's that kind of warm, uniform. Uh, what was his name? Um, Paul Brody. Paul Brody. That's it. Okay. Um, there's a a particular school of of playing that is you know, that sort of classical approach to playing the instrument. I am the antithesis of that. <laughs> I actually, I actually, um, I share something with a bunch of other rock and roll saxophone players. And I only figured this out a few years ago is that like, I play the saxophone incorrectly, um, which leads some of my colleagues to come up to me and go, what are you doing? Or what are you doing there? How are you doing that? And I go, well, I'm playing, I'm playing my E this way. And it's like, well, isn't it flat? It's like, not for me. It's not. So there's a whole thing with the left hand key stack that I just do incorrectly. And, but it enables me to do a bunch of things that as it turns out, a bunch of other fairly well-known rock and roll saxophone players also play the saxophone incorrectly. (laughs) Um, So I just by circumstance, I, or by happenstance, I happen to play incorrectly. And so all these things that you can do on a saxophone, if you play the saxophone incorrectly, were available to me. Right. Um, so, yeah, I I'm I do a bunch of things incorrectly, but it turns out that that's part of uh, that's part of a world of saxophone playing that I I kind of joined the club not realizing that I had the password. I didn't know I had the handshake. <laughs> I just kind of walked in and I had you know I was in. So, did you ever consider? playing this I mean why why the violin for the classical music why didn't you become a sax player in in the orchestra because uh, I was already playing like rock and roll and R&B and and you know it was greasy kid stuff it was you know um, plus I had been playing the violin for seven years eight years no 
I've been playing the violin for 10 years at that point right. when I got to university. 11 years. Yeah, 11 years. So, you know, <laughs> okay. 11 years of playing the violin was kind of enough. And also, I, I, I had been getting gigs. I had been working the whole time as a musician. I had actually, like, I also um, saw friends and also I had a, you know, a grade seven teacher who played upright bass in the symphony. And I knew how much money he made. And I knew that he had to be a school teacher to subsidize his orchestra job. And it looked like, okay, so I'm going to spend all this money and then I'm going to make this much. And already um, orchestras were kind of on life support. Right. I mean, you know, never mind what's going to happen in the end times after all this happens after the pandemic, right? Yeah. Um, but there's, you know, the arts, when you're dealing with a giant organism like an orchestra and all the infrastructure and the bureaucracy of, of uh, that comes with a union in that kind of a setting, um, I just kind of looked at it and went, okay. Also, like if you're in the second violins and you're third stand of the second violins, there's this whole chain of command where you have to report to the head of the second violins and then he goes talks to the head of the first violins and he talks to the concert master and then he talks to the conductor. Right. You can't talk to the conductor because that would be pandemonium. <laughs> but it was also this like, what? I can't go and talk to that guy? No, 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 no. You have to talk to that guy who talks to that guy. You know, it's like, okay, this is a bureaucracy. I, I don't know if I like this. Okay, so when you put down the violin... Um, was that a difficult choice at all? I mean, I see everything you said, and that makes sense to me that why you would make that decision. But was that it for your violin? Like, how much violin playing did you do after that? I didn't do any violin playing for quite some time until I got to Toronto. And I guess it was around 1988. Um, so, yeah, I guess about I moved to Toronto in 86. And in 88, I joined the Bourbon Tabernacle Choir. And about a year into being in the band, Chris Brown, the piano player, found out I played violin and uh, started writing parts on violin for me to play. And he said, go get your violin. <laughs> How easy was that? Uh, it was pretty easy, actually. I, I, I wound up just going to Long and McQuaid and buying an electric violin. Right. And uh, so that, that became one of the other things that became the trash barge of instruments that lay at my feet between at one point I had a trumpet and a musical saw and a baritone alto and tenor saxophone. And I only played the alto when I was playing alto and tenor at the same time. And it was, yeah, I was playing all the unwanted toys <laughs> over on stage left. Um, what made you decide to move to Toronto? Like, did you have to do that to make a career out of music? I kind of wanted to know if it was me or if it was the town I was living in. And I wanted, I was at the point where I wanted to be far enough away that my mom wouldn't do my laundry. You know, I knew if I went to Vancouver, she might still come over and do my laundry. <laughs> so, and I had, uh, that summer, I had met a couple of people. Um, Gary Van Buskirk, the, the booker, the impresario at uh, Harpo's, which is another place that was kind of a key place uh, in my sort of development. It was a nightclub in Victoria that um, every like touring national acts would come through Victoria 
they get to the West Coast and their reward for having made it halfway through the tour was they get to go to Victoria and play at Harpo's, a little um, nightclub with amazing sight lines and a really well-educated, like a, a an audience with really well-cultivated tastes. So this is a place where on Monday you could see the Red Hot Chili Peppers before they were famous, and on Tuesday you could see Bill Evans before he died. Hmm. You know, kind of like it was it was an amazing place. And I saw Hank Ballard and the Midnighters, like the whole band in a line. They were just lined up across the entire stage. There's like whatever, fourteen people. I saw Otis Clay. Um you know, Katie Lang. Uh, so, I mean, it was this place, this amazing place where people who had taste in music and had figured out how to pay for it was, were able to woo these people over. Because, I mean, they come to Seattle or they come to Vancouver and it's like, uh, you know, if we throw you a few more bucks on your night off, will you come and play here on a Tuesday? Right. So I got a, I got a chance to see some incredible music and I got to put some of my bands on that stage. And I'm, I met a few people there. I met um, Hawk Walsh from the Downchild Blues Band. Hawk was in Victoria, and the the booker, Gary, said, I want you to come upstairs. There was like a, the crow's nest. It was where the office was. He walked up these little rickety circular stairs, and he says, come upstairs. I want you to meet somebody. And he introduced me to Hawk. And, uh, and of course, Hawk was a, an unusual person <laughs> and it's like a fat, you know, fascinating piece of living sculpture. Right. <laughs> and, and, uh, and he said to me, yeah. So, uh, if you're coming to Toronto, you know, you should come and visit me in the pine trio down at the pine tree tavern. And like, okay. So I kind of ticked that box. Um, so, you know, make a, put a pin in that. Right. And then, um, I think a little earlier in the summer, um, a friend of mine, Rob Hollingsworth, a guitar player, said, I want you to come down and, and uh, meet a guy. He's a guitar player from Toronto. Um, he's, he's got a really unusual playing style. And so I went down, and at Soundcheck, I met Jeff Healy. Huh. And nobody knew who he was, but my friend knew him because of an article that was in the Globe and Mail. And so we went down there and I met him and I learned a few show business tricks from Jeff watching him operating that day in the club. And we made, we made friends. And so when I got to Toronto, one of the first people that I looked up was him. And one of the first things I did was hang out with him in his apartment with all the burnt out light bulbs. Cause who needs light bulbs when, <laughs> right. And, and he played me 78s of like Coleman Hawkins and Ben Webster and that became kind of a hang. Um, and if somebody new came into town, you know, from the West Coast, they'd say, let's go over and see Jeff. So we'd go over and, you know, if there was a saxophone player coming from out of town, I'd say, you know, I'd say to Jeff, have you got stuff that you can only play for for saxophone players? And he'd put on test pressings of like Coleman Hawkins warming up before a radio broadcast. Hmm. Like crazy, you know, stuff. And he told me, he said, you're one of a handful of people who has ever heard this, <laughs> you know? So, uh, you know, so I, so I meet Jeff, I met Hawk and the Lincolns came through town 
and they played Victoria at Harpo's. And I took a lesson from John Panchishan, the fishing musician, who was their tenor sax player, right. who, who used to, you know, he had really long blonde hair and he put um, hair glue in it so it would stand straight up. And he was, he was that kind of apeshit R&B badass, like heroic saxophone playing that I only sort of heard about. And I had listened to the Lincoln's album, but I didn't know that that was possible to do that in person. And then I saw it happening. It was like, oh my God. And that was part of the reason that I had made that R that R and B show band right. was was to play Lincoln's tunes. So before I saw the Lincolns, I was already playing Lincoln's tunes. <laughs> when I was a teenager, I was playing Lincoln's tunes, which served me well later when I joined the Lincolns, <laughs> which was also that was weird. Prakash was phoning me. And saying, hello, this is Prakash John of the Lincolns. I'm calling you. And it was like, this is weird. I'm not the guy. I came to see the guy. I moved to Toronto to see the guy in the Lincolns. <laughs> and here's the Lincolns phoning me to be in the Lincolns. And it, so I, I dodged his phone calls for a little while. And then one day he caught me. I answered the phone and it was him. And it was like I had to talk to him and I played my first gig. So why did you dodge? Because it was weird because I moved to Toronto to see the guy. I didn't move to Toronto to be the guy. And then somebody took me aside and went, you're the guy. Like, we need a, what Prakash wants is not only a guy who can play and who can play like that, but who's also like a showman. Somebody's going to put on a show. So begrudgingly, I did it and it was like, oh, oh yeah. And it turns out, you know, there's two great finishing schools for saxophone players in this country. One of them is the Lincolns, where you learn to be an R&B saxophone player, and you learn things like, thanks to the arrangements of this thing that have been road tested and have been performance tested, you learn stuff that you can't learn really in any other setting unless you're doing it the real deal with the real people. Right. Stuff like, you know, when the Lincolns play Knock on Wood, it's not like when anybody else plays Knock on Wood. Because it's got a seven-minute saxophone solo in it. <laughs> and it's designed where, like, here's your starting point. And then it ramps up. It kind of locks into the next phase. And then it sits there for a while, and you do your thing. And then it locks into the next thing. And then it gears up into the next thing. And then it gears into the next thing. And... I knew that it was going to take a while because I had, you know, I'd heard the recordings. Right. And I had seen the show. But to actually do it and to get to that fourth phase where it's like, okay, now we're at the halfway point. <laughs> what are you going to do? But the thing kind of makes its own gravy because it's, you start noticing funny things like all of a sudden, instead of more instruments coming in, an, in, an instrument drops out or something gets simplified. And all of a sudden, there's this space for you, the soloist, to work with. Okay, but... And then it builds, and it builds, and it, seriously, it's got like seven or ten tiers to it. And when it finally builds to that apex, the only logical thing to do is to play a really high note <laughs> and to hold it 
and to not move, and the, and the earth moves beneath you, the whole world begins to revolve around you. And all you need to do is to stand there and heroically just hold that note. And if you don't budge, you have the people at the back, you have the audience members at the back of the room. You, like it's, and it's exhilarating, right? Right. This is what I'm talking about. Like I saw people doing this and I kind of went, I want that. And I moved to Toronto and next thing I know, somebody's asking me if I would like to do that. So, I mean, this is kind of a, this keeps on happening. Um, but let me ask people, you, when, when you're doing that, and let's say it's building and building, how do you know that you don't get to the apex before it's, it's time? Uh, and also, how do you know, um, when you said you learned these things, how do you learn those things? Like, Prakash doesn't say, this is what I want you to do. Oh, no, no. <laughs> you, got, you got no instruction from him, really. Right. Yeah. It's, um, well, I mean, the band gets staffed with the correct people. That's one way to do it, right? I mean, it's kind of like, you know, if you're hiring a record producer, well, hire the producer to do the thing that you want him to do that he's famous for, and then let him do his job. Uh, but in terms of learning how to do that, it was it was kind of on the job training. I got kind of thrown in the deep end and it's like, okay, swim. <laughs> and, but, but the thing does kind of, the thing does kind of dictate what to do to a certain extent. Like the arrangements, like I said, um, I got a chance to analyze it a bit more once I was in it. Like we had a weekly gig at, um, the Esplanade Beer Market. Mm -hmm. Every Thursday, the Lincolns would play two sets. So after a while, I got to notice stuff like, you know, Jorn Anderson would be playing a percussion grapefruit. And you can't hear that. So I went over to him and, you know, I think this is the second gig I played with them. And I said, I, I said, it's, I'm having such a ball and I love playing with you. And I'm learning so much. And I said to him, but what, what's with the grapefruit? <laughs> I actually said that to him. And he said, oh, yeah, that's, um, that's for us. I said, what do, you, what do you mean that's for us? He goes, oh, that's, that's just for us right here on stage. And what he was doing, like, I mean, Jorn Anderson is one of those drummers. All of my favorite drummers have a, 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 um, a similar thing going on, which is what they're doing and what it sounds like don't match they half the time they don't look like they're doing anything right and 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 what's coming from the drums doesn't sound anything like what it looks like and including this grapefruit thing like which he's playing this percussion this big sort of plastic percussion grapefruit <laughs> and he's creating an internal subdivision like a little syncopated thing inside it's not anything anybody in the audience hears but it's something that we all feel and it's informing what the, what, the, what, the rest of, what the rest of the band is doing. And so there's all sorts of these little seasonings, these little, these little sprigs of, of saffron that everybody, like Dennis Keldy, is, is pulling out just the right amount of draw bars that give the underpinning a kind of resonance or a flutiness that inspires you to move into another register, right? Right. So 
there's there's breadcrumbs for the saxophone player and but if you you just have to know that it's going to be okay and that this is going to take a while so like the first time i played the knock on wood solo i got halfway through and i'm like going "Uh oh i have nowhere else to go (laughs) you know and so then you start realizing oh okay i really do need to pace myself so on the charts that um you know i basically one of the fun things about looking at other people's charts which there are all these charts from earl seymour is that you have other people whispering instructions in your ear. Sometimes quite literally, because they'll have instructions on a page. My instruction to the next guy that was going to look at these charts on the solo for Knock on Wood was, keep going. (laughs) And then an ellipsis, and it goes, no, keep going. (laughs) Because that's literally the first time he plays that tune He's going to realize what I was talking about. Right. It's like, oh, oh, this is really, this is, this is a massive saxophone feature. And that's the thing about the Lincolns is that as a finishing school for a saxophone player, it's kind of a laboratory where you get a chance to do things that you can't conscionably do in other people's shows because rarely are you going to have a seven minute solo in anything right. on other people's gigs. It's mostly going to be about concision and playing something and getting right to the point with you know, the solo on Knock on Wood or a few other Lincoln's tunes, the solo, the song is a life support system for a massive saxophone solo. Right. How, how easy no, was so. it for you to come to Toronto and establish yourself? Like, I don't know how easy it is for somebody from Victoria to just come into the Toronto music scene and start playing. Well, I didn't know anybody, but I, I did the thing that I still kind of do to this day. Um, which is as soon as I got into town, I just went to every jam session in town and, you know, just kind of sat around. If there was, you know, if there's somebody had a gig and I'd be, uh, I'd hang out and on the break, I'd be talking with people and I wouldn't invite myself on stage, but invariably, you know, I'd have my horn with me. And if somebody, I would never say, Hey man, can I sit in? Right. But invariably people would say, Hey man, you, you got your axe. Would you like to get up for a tune? And I'd be like, yeah, sure. So, you know, like I went to solitaires and sat in with Mondo Combo um, and met Harrison Kennedy within the first month of my time in, in Toronto. And Harrison became my primary employer for a couple of years and got to know him, you know, um, and through him got to know like all sorts of players in Toronto. And, you know, I went and sat in with um, Hawk Walsh right. at the Pine Tree because he invited me to come down. So I showed up and it's like, oh, you, you, you showed up. <laughs> and I'd go down to Grossman's. And every time I sat in, I got a gig. And every time I sat in, usually what would happen, I would say pretty much every single time, they'd say, yeah, well, we'll get you up for a tune. And then I would prepare to walk away and I'd say, thanks, fellas. And they'd go, no, no, no. Why don't you stick around? Plan another one with us. And next thing you know, I'd be playing the whole set with them. And they'd say, hey, man, if you want to stick around. And sometimes I'd say, nah, I got to go. 
but they'd say, well, let me get your number because we've got a couple of gigs coming up, right? So, I mean, that's how I kind of pieced it together. And this was also at a time when g- there were gigs seven nights a week. Right. So it was possible to go see people playing every night of the week and go see several bands in an evening. Um, and there were, you know, kind of funny situations like I used to go to the Matador Club which was a country music after hours club. Right. And I'm a saxophone player hanging out in a country music bar, but I like to play rock and roll. And so I got up and the lady who owned the place, she was like, I don't like saxophone, but I like you. (laughs) And so I didn't pay a cover anymore. I was in there every Friday and Saturday until four o'clock in the morning. And I was meeting all these people you know, that were part of the country music scene. That's how I met Johnny Loveson. And I was playing, so I started playing rock and roll with him and all these people in the country music scene when that became a resurgence. And it got to the point where I was there so often that, uh, and, and done the, uh, the proprietor of the place. She said, you know, I got an apartment above the stage. I'm almost finished making up. You know, if, if you wanted to, uh, you want to take a look at it? And so I was like, sure. So I, she threw me the keys. And as it turns out, as you're looking at the stage of the Matador Club, on the far left, or oh, sorry, on the far right, there's a door, but it was a black door. So you couldn't tell that it was a door. The whole wall was painted black. And that was literally exit stage left. That was the door to the apartment. So I went up the stairs and there's this brand new apartment that like nobody's ever lived in. I had, I unwrapped my fridge. And there was a huge deck and I came back downstairs. This is like at, you know, five o'clock in the morning when everybody's leaving. And I said, this is amazing. What, uh, how much is it? And she said, it's 400 bucks a month. And I thought, well, you know, how much am I spending every day to take a cab from the Matador club at Dover Court and college <laughs> up to Eglinton and St. Cl- or uh, uh, young and, and uh, St. Clair. And it's like, well, I'm doing that like eight times a month. I could just, you know, the the joke, if you lived here, you'd be home by now, <laughs> suddenly applied to me. So I, so I started living in the Matador Club above the stage. So I, you know, 365 days a year, I had, I had the run of the place. I had keys to the club so I could rehearse down there if I wanted to. It's haunted, by the way. <laughs> And I, I actually experienced some of the specters in there. It was, it was brilliant. Wow. And, uh, but again, like, how do I keep on meeting these people? I keep on winding up in these, I keep winding up in these situations where I kind of, I sort of insert myself and then, but not with any particular intention. It's just, I'm kind of being curious. So yeah, I go to the Matador Club and all of a sudden I meet all the country music and rock and roll people. And um, actually, when I when I got back off of the cruise ship, I was on a cruise ship that sank. Yeah, tell me about that. Did it actually sink when you were playing? Like, I, no, I mean, actually. Okay. I I I missed the sinking um, by that much. Actually, I was supposed to be on the boat. Um, I I boarded the MV Jupiter in uh, the summer of 1988, and I was 
fulfilling the back the back end of a contract for somebody else. So, sorry, this is around the time that you're starting to play with Bourbon Tabernacle Choir. No, I started with the Bourbons after I got back. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. So what made you decide to take on this gig? Well, there was, there was a, another sax player friend of mine, Charlie Huntley, and Charlie... Um, like there was, there's a bunch of horn players and we're all kind of subbing for one another. And, you know, I'm busy enough that there's a couple of people are, um, relying on me being busy for their livelihood. Like I was, I I had so much work that I was sub, I built a sub out a lot. Right. And so there was a gig that came up, um, with frozen ghost the band Frozen Ghost. Great band. Yeah. Yeah, so there was this post, the band Frozen Ghost, who also was a band called Sheriff. Right. And they had they had a bunch of hits, and, and um, they were going on tour, and they needed a sax player who could play keys. And my keyboard skills weren't great. <laughs> and I was talking to Charlie, and Charlie had good keyboard chops. And he had just got a call from Dan Bone to see about subbing for Dan on this cruise ship. So I said, well, why don't you go do the Frozen Ghost gig? Because the bread was kind of okay. And I'll do the 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 ship gig because I hadn't been to Europe. I, 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 unlike everybody else, didn't go backpacking on my wander, uh, on my, uh, in a walkabout right. after high school. So my, my walkabout, of course, again, thank you, music, was um, sailing around the Mediterranean getting paid to play my saxophone. So I did that for a few months, and uh, my, I got a phone call as we were arriving in Venice. Or no, I got a, I got a telex as we, I was arriving in Venice, to call home. So I'm in St. Mark's Square in Venice. And I call home and I and my mom answers the phone and she explains to me that my father has passed away. Oh. And so the people that I have just been entertaining for the last two weeks, I fly back with them on the plane because we're, we're switching... Um, passengers like every two weeks we're in Venice that's our home port so I was in my home port and I get this news and so I fly back I overnight in Toronto I wound up sleeping on the porch of a friend of mine who wasn't (laughs) turned out wasn't home (laughs) and so I wound up sleeping on their porch and then I went back to the airport and then continued on to Victoria for my father's funeral and then fly back to Toronto and try to re- rejoin the ship. And it's a comedy of errors trying to reconnect with the ship. But it's it's not to be. Now, mind you, the entire time that I was on the ship, we get we 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 get free postcards with the ship's picture on it. <laughs> and so I was writing everybody that I knew and, you know, sometimes I would you know, just write a sentence and then the next sentence would be on the next postcard. And, you know, that kind of thing. Just got to, it's something to do because you've got lots of time on your hands. Right. And so 
but I was all, I would always sign my, my uh, postcard and remember I can't swim. <laughs> and so, I, so I've been reinforcing this message to all my friends as I've been sending out these postcards and the ship I'm, I'm trapped at home. I actually, now I'm back in Toronto. I don't have a place to stay because before I got on the ship, I, I, you know, put everything in storage. Right. But there was this passenger that I met and we kind of fell for each other uh, about a month before I was on the ship or a month, uh, or sorry, a month before I got off the ship. And uh, so I got in touch with her and she's like, yeah, well you can stay here. So I'm, I'm staying at her place trying to get back onto the ship, you know, trying to find a, um, a flight and trying to coordinate with where the ship is going to be. Right. Is it going to be in Spain? Is it going to be in Egypt? And I get a call from, from her and she goes, Jean, put it on channel three. This is back when they were like, you know, 14 channels. Right. So I put it on channel three and there's my ship's purser being pulled out of the water. <laughs> and it's like, what, 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 what's going on here? And it's like the ship got hit broadside by an Italian freighter, by an Italian captain who was drunk. He plowed into the side of the ship and the ship sank in 20 minutes. Wow. Yeah. Now this is of course before the internet, this is before anything. So all my friends know is all of my friends know the name of the ship <laughs> and that I can't, and that I can't swim and that now the ship has sunk. Right. So I'm, I frantically am calling my friends, letting them know that I'm okay. But much, uh, uh, my good fortune in this is that my contract had had ended, um, was to end rather six or seven days after the ship had sunk. What had happened was that the crew and all of my friends, like all the guys in the band, they had disembarked and were in Piraeus awaiting the flight home. So you're still under contract as you're flying back. Right. Uh, you're still working for them. And that's how, you know, you kind of keep your nose clean until you get back and then you get paid. Right. Right. So anyway, um, but as far as my friends are concerned, I'm still under contract and I'm still on this, on this ship. Well, when they left the ship, they actually grabbed my, uh, my alto saxophone and my luggage. So I actually got to keep my things. Oh, that's nice. What, what, cause when the, when the ship went down, I was thinking, oh, I guess my saxophone is at the bottom of the sea now. <laughs> But no, it was uh, it was spared. So I, I still have that alto saxophone. Um, musically, what did that experience give you playing on a, a cruise ship? Anything different? <laughs> no, it's it's basically it's like a it's like a floating motel, right? Right. I mean, this thing was it was a small. We only had five hundred passengers. This thing was like a lifeboat compared to what you know, my friends who are currently trapped on the QE are experiencing. I have friends who are, uh, who are trapped on cruise ships right now. They can't disembark and they can't, they're, they're without a country. Right. They're actually, um, I, there's two saxophone players, a friend of mine, Mike Skinner from here. 
another friend of mine, uh, a buddy of mine, Chris from Victoria, are both stuck on the same ship right now. And they're just floating. They just spend their days playing volleyball and like sorting through music and, <laughs> you know, posting updates on Facebook. Wow. Yeah. Uh, as long as the virus isn't floating around the ship. No. Well, what happened was um, the the ship is basically quarantined and they've been quarantined. So now they know that there's no passengers on the ship. Right. Like they disembarked all the passengers, but the staff and the crew were still on there. And they were off the coast of, I think they're sailing towards the coast of Manila right now. Huh. Uh, and I can't remember where they were. They were someplace else for quite a while. And the wherever it was basically said, yeah, you can't be hanging out here anymore. <laughs> so they, they were told, yeah, you got to go someplace else. So the Philippines went, yeah, okay, you can come here. Wow. So it's this weird kind of asylum that they've been granted. So if we go back to the time that you came to Toronto and you were just meeting new musicians and trying to make a name for yourself in the city. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, the fact that you wound up in the Lincolns pretty early says that you're you were a decent player at that point. But tell me about confidence and how easy it is to go up to people and say, hey, I play the sax, you know, great music, uh, love to play with you or whatever. How- uh, I, I, I have a theory about this. Um, I, I joke that I was hugged too much as a child. So I got all kinds of reinforcement when I was growing up. And, and nobody ever stopped giving me that reinforcement. Like, I, you know, I was 14 and I got a house gig at like the happening little slice of New York City in, New, in Victoria. Right. Um, I put together a band, like an all-star band with all the, all the heavy players in town. And they, I'm assuming they humored me, you know, but it was like I had work. I also, I learned that, you know, the best people in town, they love to play music. And the best people in town, they love working. And the best people in town love meeting new people. Right. So I, I kind of learned that lesson when, I'm, when I was in Victoria was that I, I kind of boldly went to all the great guys in town and I said, hey, <laughs> you know, would you like to be in a band with me? I'm putting a band together. And they're like, yeah, sure. Because... You know, because they're the chosen ones, and I'm, I'm chose, I'm choosing them again. Right. And so when I, when I got into town, I, I kind of, I make myself available, but I, I wasn't pushy, and as long as I was given an opportunity, um, I. I'd be able to show them what I could offer them. But, and but how long also how how old were you when you knew that you had something to offer? Well, I I don't know. I've always you know, my mom told me I was special, right? Right. I mean that's that's the curse. <laughs> I, I I was actually kind of crestfallen at one point when I realized that everybody's parents told them that they were special. <laughs> And I was like, yeah, but but I'm actually special was the was the, you know, the <laughs> solution that was the answer that I had to come up with. But it was it was that thing of 
Um, I've, I've always just kind of done what I really enjoyed doing. And I, I somehow managed to, I didn't try to monetize it. It just kind of worked out that way. The only job that I've ever held was I, I had a, when I was 16, I got a summer job working at a hotel as a concierge. (laughs) And I became the head concierge in about two years into that I got the the uh, actually yeah about two years into that I, I got um, or three years into that I, I bought a I, I got an apartment downtown really close to work and I said you know, I said to myself okay well I'm kind of all set here I didn't want to play music for a living so I thought I'll have jobs and then music will be because music is so special to me. That's I don't want to make that a job. Right. And so I'm working at the hotel and I've got my bands that I'm playing with. And, you know, all of my colleagues at work are coming to see me play. And, you know, it's it's like that, you know, I've, and and it's great. And I've got this whole little setup. And then my boss takes me aside and she goes, so um, I've made a decision. I'm like okay and I'm waiting to hear about my raise and she says so I'm going to let you go and I'm like because uh, I was uh, at this point I was the the head concierge and everybody loved me like everybody like the the returning guests would ask for me and I made a pant load of money and tips and blah 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 and she said you've got something that you need to do. And she said, Francois and Loga, this couple that had just moved from France, all they know is the hotel business. That's the only thing that they do. So I'm going to give him that job. I'm going to give you, um, I'm going to set you up so that you have unemployment insurance and you're going to be, but she said, you're going to be fine. How'd that make you feel? It was like, uh, I, like I don't. So it's like, okay, I've got to, I got to find a job. I just, I'll find a job. I'm gonna, I'll find a job. It'll be fine. I'll just go get a job and I'll be fine. But at that exact same time, and this is the universe doing its thing again. A friend of mine is, uh, who's another saxophone player, in Victoria, gets a call to go on tour with Jimi Hendrix's cousin, a guy named Henry Brown, who's a bass player out of Seattle. And he's going to go on tour in Europe for months. And he had a little band. My buddy Paul had a band called the Big Band Trio, and it's three guys. A guitar player, a good, um, an upright bass player, and this guy who played saxophone. Right. And they played big band tunes as a trio, and they were the toast of the town. They played everywhere, and they were working all the time. And... Um, I had played one gig with them. I played New Year's Eve with them the year before. So they knew that I could play the tunes. <laughs> but I only played with them once. And all of a sudden, I got this call to go play with them. Well, this is at a time when they had a lunchtime show at, um, at a gentleman's club from noon until three. And then from four until seven, they had another, like a, an early dinner show 
and then they would have a nightclub show in the evening. So I went from being a concierge to being a full-time saxophone player <clears throat> kind of overnight. <laughs> and I didn't really think about it. It was just like, oh, okay, well, I, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll do these gigs. And after about a month, I had to come up with rent and I had more than enough for rent. But I was actually choked. I was actually kind of pissed off because I realized that I had been kind of tricked into becoming a professional musician. <laughs> I, I, was, I was actually kind of like, uh, I don't like this. You know, and so I was quite determined to find a job. But I, I didn't have any time to look for a job because I was playing so much. Wow. And that just kept on happening. And then I moved to Toronto and I got... Um, I started getting some temp work when I first moved here. When I first moved here, Toronto was the kind of place that you could have a job, quit it in the morning and have another job in the afternoon. There was so much work. Right. And getting paid like, you know, $15, $17 an hour. And so I... I ran a photocopier down in at um down in the financial district for a royal trust and i did that um for a temp agency they they basically let me rate my own ticket i went and did a horrible job for them <laughs> uh rather the job the job was horrible for this uh, this boss who was honestly the most horrible person i've ever met in my entire life <laughs> And I watched as the remaining people in that company quit. And I was the only person left. I was the receptionist. Every receptionist who had gone in there before had left in tears. And when this temp agency, this lady who ran the temp agency, uh, I said to her, give me any job. Give me the worst jobs. I'll, 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 do, the, I'll do the shitty jobs for you. So send me up. And... So she took me up on it. So she sent me out and she said, um, I don't care how long you last here, but like, if you can just, you know, so I get there and the most abusive, horrible person I've ever met. And the last day that we were, I was at work, the boss was out of town and the last guy who was working there, the last, the only person who had not quit was a little computer company. Uh, he said, uh, his name was Brian and he was, he's kind of in his mid or his early sixties and he'd been with the company since the beginning. And he, he took me aside and he said, you probably don't want to be here when he comes back today. And I said, but why Brian? And he goes, today's my last day. I'm quitting. I can't take this anymore. And so I helped him pack up his things on his desk and put them in the box, the, the, the banker's box like that. It was like a scene out of a bad movie and the, and like the picture of his dead wife. And we put that in the box and like the pictures of his kids and put that in the box and his coffee mug and all that stuff. And he said, you don't want to be here when he gets back. It was like, I think I know what you're saying. So I, we, we locked the door and we put the key in the slot and we left. And I called the, the lady from the temp agency and I said, and I explained what was going on. She goes, 
I can't believe that you lasted a week there. She said, like, whatever you want, you name it. And I said, I want to start later and I want to finish when I'm done the work, but I want a full day's pay. <laughs> and she said, and she said, okay, you got it. So I had these temp assignments where I was supposed to be there at nine o'clock and leave at four. And I would get there at 11. I would leave at three and I would get a full day's pay because I would have all the work done if it was filing or whatever. So, I mean, you know, again, with the hacking, the system sort of like knowing my value or knowing what to ask for or kind of being real with people, that's kind of how it, that's how the thing keeps on manifesting itself, you know? But, okay, so when I listen to you talk from from even the young age of, of you know, gathering a band with the All-Stars in Victoria, you obviously have a sense of business. You have a sense to get things done. Where does that come from? Um, I guess it's driven by the goal of playing the gig. You know, I do all this other minutiae, you know, so that I can go play music with my friends. Right. Right. So it's like, okay, well, I'll get the PA. I'll set up the PA. I'll talk to the, to the father of the bride. Um, I'll talk to the CEO. Um, I'll get the deposit. Um, I'll do the emails. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll get the charts. I'll book the rehearsal space. I, I like that because it's all leading up to the gig. It's all leading up to the thing that we want to do. Right. You know, so I, I, I never really, um, I do all that stuff not begrudgingly. I, I actually look forward to it because uh, there's there's a goal. There, there's uh, an end game. And I, I enjoy the uh, having the pieces of the puzzle fall into place. Um, I remember <laughs> Brandy Desterhaft, the upright bass player. Um, I used to have a house gig with her at the Windsor Arms. And it was Robbie Botos on piano. Sly Uhouse on drums and Brandy on upright bass and Errol Fisher was the singer. And that was how we, that was how we met. Well, I used to get lots of little combo gigs where it would be like upright bass and saxophone and piano, just like, uh, you know, instrumental cocktail music and that sort of thing. And Brandy told me something. I think Sly actually was there too and confirmed it. Um, she said to me, I would rather play your gig for less money because it's fun. <laughs> and, uh, and I thought oh, that's, I thought that was high praise, mm-hmm. but I, but I, I never understood why it couldn't be fun. You know, like I, I have worked with people for whom the gig is a trial. It's exactly the same gig. It's a cocktail gig, but it, it's just like, why is everybody miserable? You know? And I mean, I, I want to be the energy source. If I'm the band leader on the gig, I want to be the energy source where, you know, there, everybody had a good time and the client is super happy. And, you know, the noise complaint was that we weren't loud enough. Not that we were too loud, you know? <laughs> um, I, like, I, I like putting a fine point on things. Okay. So I, and I, I get it. I get a kick out of that. So when you joined the Bourbon Tabernacle Choir, 
how different was that? Because that was a band that was happening. Um, was was well, it different in the, in the way that it was joining a band as opposed to a side oh, yeah, Oh, yeah, totally. Like, what was funny, because I, ca- I got off of the cruise ship, and I was at Loose Ends. And uh, I ran into my friend Kimberly, who I knew from Victoria. And... Like, I, it's funny, like, I used to run into her on the street in Victoria all the time, and then I would run into her on the street in Toronto, and it seemed, like, completely normal. And then we realized, hey, wait a second, we're in Toronto. <laughs> and so I ran into her on the street one day, and she says, oh, I'm so glad I ran into you. I, You should join my friend's band. And I used to hear that all the time, <laughs> you know. Right. So she said, you should come and see them. They're playing at the Horseshoe on Wednesday. It's like, okay, well, I, and I wasn't doing much of anything because I just come off the ship. And like my stuff was still in storage. Like I, I didn't have a place or anything. And so I was it's like, okay. So I went down to the horseshoe and I met her and I walked in and I heard the band play for about 10 seconds. And I grabbed her and I said, I have to join your friend's band. And... So she took me down, downstairs into the uh, dressing room on the break and introduced me. And so began the next six months where the original sax player who was leaving wasn't leaving. <laughs> and so I'd show up and he'd be there. And, you know, I was like, uh, okay. But he would be, so, you know, I'd stick around and I'd play the gig, but he'd be playing the gig as well. And it'd be kind of like, wow, this is, it's kind of crowded over here because we weren't being a section. He was just kind of playing parts and I was kind of like, I wasn't quite sure what I was doing there. And uh, so finally I said to him, look, you know, let me know when, when the other guy's not here anymore and I'll, I'll, I'll come back. So they had one more gig for him and they, uh, they actually got a cake (laughs) and they, and then at the, at the apex of the show, they brought the cake out and they said, Hey everybody. It's, it's what's it? What was his name? It was, Oh yeah. It's Sean's last gig. <laughs> and they brought the cake out and it was like big celebration. Cause this is your last gig. And so then from that point on, I was actually in the band and that band, um, I made 500 bucks a month and I was, touring all over the place and we basically we made enough to pay the pay our rent back home but it was that was kind of another finishing school that was um that was before the lincolns that was that was how to be in a band that was how to be in a full-time band and kind of committed and like proverbially eating out of the same pot and traveling in the same van and recognizing members of the band by scent. (laughs) And um, making art for art's sake. And also, you know, I was in my 20s. It's a great time to do that, right? Because you haven't really got any um, anything holding you back. You haven't got anything holding you down and so it's like yeah we're all gonna go live in new york for a while okay so you know i got to live in new york for a while 
on somebody else's nickel looking and you know i'd wake up every morning on a couch in jersey city in front of a giant warehouse window looking at the southern tip of manhattan my my the first thing i saw every day when i woke up was the world trade center hmm. from the other side of the hudson river right in in jersey city um you know so i mean i got to live in new york <laughs> <laughs> and you know that's that again it's a, another one of those things where i just kind of learned stuff about life and learned stuff about music and i got to see things that i otherwise you know i got to see les paul right a bunch of a bunch of times i got to you know have my favorite table at cafe reggio in 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 greenwich village you know, that's been there for like since 1927. You know, I got to, I got to experience uh, like so much of, of that city. I got to go to the top of the World Trade Center. And, you know, uh, for all that to be my, my backyard, my living room. So that when I go back to New York now, sometimes I'll just hang out in Greenwich, Greenwich Village and I kind of live in Greenwich Village like I live there. Right, you know. Um, well, so when when that experience ended, did you? What was you thinking that you wanted to go back into getting into a band, or would you prefer to have been as a sideman? Like, what was the thing? Well, I, I got I got back, and the whole time that I was in the Bourbons, I was doing stuff with other people. Um, but I mean, I wasn't as available as I suddenly had become. Right. But again, there was still lots of lots of work playing in in clubs there's still like seven nights a week stuff going on and so i kind of you know went back into the jobbing scene pretty quickly um and there were you know i had at that point you know um played with bare naked ladies and reostatics and uh Big Sugar and Gregory Hoskins and the Stick People and all these bands that at the time were, you know, sort of bands of the, of our of our time, right? So it's like um, I became kind of known as the sax player in our little world. Okay, so how how did you become that? What what made you the guy that was the little sax player that all these bands went to? Well, I mean, I was in the Bourbon Tabernacle Choir, and that was attached to... The Bourbons were almost like an ecosystem unto itself, right? Right. Uh, there's a lot of tributaries that flow from um, from the Bourbons, right? I mean, you can draw a direct line. You can draw several lines from Bare Naked Ladies to Bourbons. You can... Uh, Bare Naked Ladies opened for another band that I was in called the Buddha Pumpkins, a band that just played... Um, uh, meters covers right. <laughs> at Clinton's, um, and they opened. They opened for us. The bare, the bare naked ladies did, and I got one of their cassettes and I brought it into the Bourbon Tabernacle Choir van. So we're driving down the four hundred one, and I put it in the tape deck and I go, "These guys open for us. They're really fun. We should get them to open for us." And Chris Brown, the leader of the Bourbons, 
listens to it, goes, this sucks, and took the cassette tape and threw it out the window onto the 401. <laughs> but of course, karma's a bitch, as they say. And eventually, um, he wound up touring with the Bare Naked Ladies when Kevin got sick. Right. And he also started a band called Don't Talk Dance with Gordy Johnson and Tyler Stewart and and Chris. And the horn section was me and uh, Michael Johnson from Big Rude Jake. Right. And that was like a hip-hop thing. So, I mean, uh, and then there's like, um, by Divine Right, there's a connection there to the Bourbons. There's uh, Big Rude Jake. There's a connection to the Bourbons. Like, there's all these... So, I mean, and I was kind of like the saxophone player, <laughs> Okay, you know, so, I, I had, I had, I was kind of the default setting in a lot of ways. Well, there weren't but really once any again, other saxophone players. you had to be of a certain level to be able to fill that. Role. Oh yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. And it's right place, right time as well. Right. Um, you know, I, but I was, I was committed to doing things. Also, I kind of had a, a, an approach. I had a playing style. Um, I have, I tend to play flat out to the back of the room, kind of a, I have a kind of no prisoners approach to playing <laughs> and it's not, well, it's not like, foo, 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 foo. it's like, you know, which is why I got into the Lincolns. Right. And then later on, um, you know, after playing with, uh, I did a, a, a few shows with Colin James and that introduced me to some people in Peterborough. Like, again, like I did a show in Peterborough with Colin. And afterwards, because this is what I do, I wound up at the Red Dog. Right. And I sat in at the Red Dog and I became known as Colin James's saxophone player <laughs> by the people of Peterborough. They probably still think that I play with Colin. And because of that, I got to know the people in, in that town and that night I met a woman who I wound up dating for seven years. And because I became part of that ecosystem in Peterborough, a bunch of guys in Ronnie Hawkins band started talking to Ronnie about me. And so by the time I got one of my favorite phone calls ever, right. um, I was in the band. I got a phone call and it was from Ronnie and he goes, Hey Gene, it's Ronnie Hawkins. You're the one I like. Let's rock. And then he left his phone number. And so I got coached by the guys in the band before I played my first gig with them, which I think was the Calgary Stampede. Um, and they coached me. They said, don't play that crazy high shit. That He hates that. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. So I went and I got the boxed set. There was a British boxed set of everything that he recorded. And I learned the solos from all of his studio recordings. So when it came time to play Mary Lou for the first time, and I play the solo and I see Ronnie and he's, he's leaning over and he's, and he's pretending that he's playing the saxophone looking at me. And I'm thinking, okay. And then I, I pull back after my solo, step back from the microphone, and Buzz Thompson, his guitar player, leans over and he says, 
you just made an old man very happy. <laughs> and it was like, yes, mission accomplished, right? Because that's exactly what I'm trying to do here. Are you, sorry, do you notate all this when you go through all these solos? Or does this just go into your head and you can figure it out? No, I kind of, I try to lift it by hearing it. Because if I have to notate it, then I have to look at it. Wow, that's amazing. I guess it's probably well, not amazing to you, but it is amazing to me. Yeah, well, I'd rather learn how to tell the joke than read the joke. Right. Right, you know, and it's, um, and yeah, it's sometimes there's, there's quite a volume of stuff. But, I mean, to that end, like a solo, with the exception of a Lincoln's tune, is usually quite short. So I have specific targets that I have to, points that I have to hit. But it's usually pretty concise, right? So right. like if I'm going to play the sax solo in Maneater, you know, it's got a shape. And usually if, especially if I'm, if I'm replicating something, like if I'm playing, you know, uh, Sam Butera's sax solo on um, Karina Karina, or if I'm playing... Um, Sam the Man Taylor's sax solo on Mary Lou. Those guys are badass players. I'm going to learn something by learning how to play that solo. And I'm not going to try to fix Sam Butera. <laughs> so, you know, I, if I learn the sax solo for Karina Karina and I play that every time I play Karina Karina, I've done the right thing. I kind of feel in that instance, it's like, well, the singer doesn't feel obliged to sing new lyrics to that song. And a professional saxophone player crafted this solo, and it's a brilliant solo. And I might learn something by lifting it. And so, you know, I'm not, I'm not necessarily doing the math on these solos, but I learn shapes from these solos, and they creep into my hands. So, you know, all these, all these things that I've had to study and lift, they do wind up becoming a part of my DNA. Can you have you ever come across a solo you couldn't figure out? Oh yeah, lots. <laughs> oh okay. Yeah, I mean, there's, I mean, there's stuff that I've done that I couldn't figure out. <laughs> no, seriously, there's there's a there's, uh, there's a thing I did. Uh, Chuck Jackson did a um, uh, the lead singer from Downchild. Chuck yeah. did a an album of uh, it was a tribute to Big Joe Turner, right. and it's an awesome record. It's such a killer band. And Pat Carey, for some reason, decided to give me the solos on this album, which was such a, an amazing gift. Pat was busy kind of producing it. Right. And um, so um, on Teenage Letter, there's a sax solo. And to this day, if you gave me a thousand bucks, I couldn't do what I did on the solo. It's And it's like, I, 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 but I mean, if somebody wants to know what I sound like or what I can do, I'll play that for them. <laughs> or or what you I did listen, once. Yeah. Because I listen to it and I go, wow, that guy's great. How does he do that? So, I mean, that does exist in places, right? Right. Um, um, I'm going to have to wrap up soon, but okay. um, I do want to ask you, um, I want to ask you about uh, your experiences with Michael Buble. Oh, Michael, yes. So Mr. tell me Bubble. about that experience, how that happened. Oh, that's another one of those, you know. I, James B. introduced me to him, 
He said, you should, um, you should meet Michael. Oh, okay. And what's, where's Michael and at this point? Is he already Michael a star was just, or? My, Michael was doing Forever Plaid at the, what is, uh, was the Panasonic Theater. He was doing musical theater stuff. Right. Um, he was known as a crooner in Vancouver. Um, um, like Bruce Allen wasn't interested in him at the time because he was just, he was a, you know, a pretty boy crooner guy, right? Right. And um, so I meet Michael and we start doing, uh, we, we have a house gig at the Reservoir Lounge. That's what it is on Friday nights. I've had a house gig on every night of the week at the Reservoir Lounge, except for Tuesday and Saturday. <laughs> but I, I I played with, I think, four bands on Fridays at the Res. And I had a house gig at various other day with various other people on various other days. Um, that was quite quite the um, petri dish, right. and 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 laboratory for stuff. So anyway, Michael had a house gig there on Fridays, so we we did that, and um, around the same time he got a write up in McLean's as one of the twenty five under twenty five. So that kind of put him on some people's radar. And then um, we wound up doing Mila Mulroney, I think it was. Yeah, Mila Mulroney had found out about us. I can't remember how she found out about Michael. But she wanted us to play some of her things, right? Like her like benefit Right. Sort of gala shindig things. And, uh, you know, Celine Dion is part of that ecosystem. And so is Michael, or uh, so is um, David Foster. Right. And so we kind of wind up in this little kind of loop where we're playing to these people and they kind of know about us. And we got a call to play Brian Mulroney's daughter's wedding nice I think it's Caroline I think it was Caroline she's in politics now right. but she was marrying the son of Lewis Lapham the publisher of um, Harper's and so it was a big you know splashy affair it was um, uh, at like the armory I think it was and you know Michael and I both had a our own suite at the Marriott. <laughs> and, you know, there's a bottle of port and like really expensive cheese and a, and a thing from the prime minister saying, thank you for, you know, being a part of this and blah, blah, blah. And, uh, leading up to this, I'm getting notes from David Foster and from, uh, Jeff, who's the kind of running things on the ground in Montreal saying, whatever you want, just tell us. And, you'll it will be there for you so we had arrangements for an 18 piece big band for a bunch of stuff so i said well this let's let's have this can you hire the best horn players in quebec okay done (laughs) so we get there and there's there's this massive stage 
And there, there they are, like, you know, 10 trombone players or whatever. And this massive horn section, and it's all these name brand guys from the music scene in, in Montreal. And my job is basically to point at them and go, yeah, I want to hear a solo from you. Well, you're the music and director. Yeah, I'm, I'm functioning as the MD. Right. I play a solo every now and then, but uh, we, we only played like, I think, seven songs or something like that. So we run through the tunes at the sound check. And, um, and it's all there. And I'm in my room. And I get a call from Michael and he says, uh, Gene, um, I just got a call from Mr. David Foster. He always <laughs> called him Mr. David Foster. I just got a call from Mr. David Foster. He wants you to meet him downstairs about doing something for the first dance. <laughs> uh, okay, sure. I'll, I'll go down there now. So I go down there and there's David and Kathy Lee Gifford. And it's going to be the three of us. And we're going to play when I fall in love, it will be forever. And there's this crazy chart that, um, uh, Foster has written out. And so we run the tune a couple of times. It's like, okay, yeah, that's all there. So, the first, the couple's first dance is me and David Foster and Kathy Lee Gifford playing this tune. And then Michael takes the stage and we do When I Follow, uh, no, sorry, we do our six or seven songs. And I look over at, uh, over on stage right, and I see David Foster talking to um, Facts of Life. What's his name? Um, he just passed away. Alan Thick. Right. So, yeah. So, Canadian show, show business royalty is sitting over there on stage right. And I see Alan Thick pointing at Michael and talking to David Foster. And I'm like, oh, the fix is in. I'm watching it happen right now. And sure enough, that was... That was the moment. Okay, and so you've worked with a lot of different people, a lot of really talented the people. Did you yeah. did you see something in Mike Michael Bublé from the? Oh, the day that I met Michael, the the day that I played music with him for the first time, I started telling people, and I have, I have people who can vouch for this. Uh, as soon as I met Michael, I started telling people this guy is going to be one of the uh, one of the voices of his generation. Wow. Yeah, but I mean he. He kind of has, he has the whole thing. Like he's got what I've heard other people describe as the Bill Clinton thing, which right. is he, he just kind of drinks you in and gives it back to you. Right. So when you're with him, you feel like he, he's like, you're the only person on earth. Right. He has that kind of connection and it's quite genuine. He's, he's not an empty vessel. He's actually, he really is that nice. He's actually, he's actually a super duper nice guy. And he does have, he has an unusual gift, but it comes from a strange place or not a strange place, but an interesting place. He, his grandfather used to come to him with cassette tapes and say to him, sunshine, I want you to learn these songs before I die. No pressure. Right. <laughs> and so he would learn these songs. And I, I only found out later when we used to play this little game on the plane 
we'd be flying somewhere and I would say, um, fly me to the moon, Victimone. And so he would start singing like Victimone, singing, um, you know, fly me to the moon. Right. And then I'd, and then eight bars in, I'd say Sammy Davis Jr. And he'd start doing Sammy <laughs> Davis Jr. But it would sound exactly like Sammy. And this is the thing about like these, like vocalists like him, is that he is a great mimic. And that's part of his secret, right? Is that he's been able to, he, so he studied all these people. And he possesses the skill of being a great mimic. And then he's able to internalize them. And, you know, I would say, and then bars, t- bar 24, I would say, Mel Torme. And all of a sudden, the Velvet Fog would, would appear. Right. And, I, and then I'd say Sinatra and Dean Martin and, you know, Jack Jones. And he knew who all these people were and he would go into them. What I didn't realize was that like a random, like a, like a computer randomly accessing a specific point. When I got to bar 24, if I said Sammy Davis Jr., he would be in bar 24 of Sammy Davis Jr.'s version of the song. Right. So like he had, he had a crazy superpower, right? It was like Jeff had this too, right? Yeah. Healy. Yeah. Um, Jeff, Jeff could, could sing any solo from any record in his 60,000 record collection. You could put anything on a spindle and he'd sing along with it. He had a photographic memory for, for melody. Mm -hmm. Michael was like that with, with lyrics and with melodies and stuff like that. He would learn it immediately. So he, Michael is one of the special ones because he has a confluence of the ability to sing like that, which is lovely but there's lots of people who can sing, but he also can interpret. He, he's also filtering all that stuff through all of this other experience that he's been able to internalize. Plus he has the Bill Clinton thing and he was the right person at the right time at the right age. You know, he was barely on the cusp, right? At, at, at 25 being discovered at 25, you're almost over the hill. Um, because these people, when they're investing in an artist like him, are looking at the returns over a lifetime, right? And like Michael wasn't a pump and dump scheme. Michael is an RSP, right? I I believe that David Foster actually has referred to Michael as his RSP. So he, he like the idea is exactly what's happening, which is that there are these people who got who had Michael's picture on their, on their locker door. And then those same women had Michael's album playing at their wedding. And now they're going to see Michael at the ACC and they will eventually see him in a casino. Like he will bring, he will bring along his, his cohort, his people, and they will go to see him in whatever format is appropriate for his career at the time. But he has earning potential into his 80s if he... I mean, there's no reason why he can't be Tony Bennett. Right. Right? So, I mean, Tony has, Tony has whispered the secrets into his ear. One of the reasons that I love being in this business is that I've had a chance to hang out with saxophone players and practitioners of the, of the musical arts who have told me things 
I learned stuff from hanging out with Sam Butera that I, things I couldn't have learned unless I had a conversation with him. Michael got a chance to t- hang out and talk with Tony Bennett. So now Michael is the custodian of that information. And at some point when he's a weasened elder, he will whisper those secrets into somebody else's ear. So, I mean, um, Michael is now one of the keepers of the secrets. And I feel like I'm one of the keepers of the secrets too. I, I have a playing style that is, um, I do a lot of what's called the, the business of saxophone playing. There were what used to be known as the saxophone business. And that's all the, all the tricks and coloration and devices and masking and all that kind of stuff that used to be the stock and trade for a saxophone player. And now it's kind of, kind of realize that yeah, I'm I'm one of a handful of guys who kind of does that. Um, it's because I'm drawn to it, right. and it's also where I kind of I kind of listen to that stuff. But I mean, you know, we're mentioning about sort of pivotal moments when I was playing in an R and B band in Victoria. Um, one of the one of the sax players in the band gave me a cassette tape. Uh, actually, this is just as I was leaving town. He gave me a cassette tape of Big Joe Turner and the Room Full of Blues. And up until that point, I had been listening to John Coltrane and I'd been playing other music, but I had been listening to jazz and I was kind of, I was kind of there. And when I got to Toronto, I started listening to this cassette tape and everybody in the band, all the horn players sounded like they were drunk. And the, the whole band, it was kind of a mess. And I couldn't take my eyes off of it. Like, I couldn't stop listening to it. And, like, these guys were playing, like, one-note solos. And they were so far behind the beat, they were practically into the next beat. And they were fluffing notes all over the place, but it was kind of glorious. Like, it was like... It was like this incredible car accident, you know? Yeah. And I I was like, wow. And I didn't want to sound like Michael Brecker. I just wanted his job. And so I was kind of was playing R&B and pop stuff, but I was listening to that blues that um, what I didn't know was Greg Piccolo, sax player from the Room Full of Blues, who eventually was going to be in Colin James's little big band, who I wound up playing with. Right. You know, so it's like I kind of get introduced to these things and then I meet these people eventually. <laughs> you know, there's there's kind of a. This keeps on happening over and over and over again. And so, you know, the the stuff that I kind of. Somebody goes here, kid, check this out. And it winds up becoming useful information for later. I feel like that Twilight Zone episode where the the old man with the suitcase comes along and he goes up to the, the snazzy looking executive guy and he goes, you know, here, I think you're going to need this. <laughs> and, and he, and he hands him a pair of scissors and he goes, you're crazy old man. I don't need a pair of scissors. He goes, Oh, that's fine. You keep them anyway. And so the, the snazzy executive guy goes to get into the elevator 
and his tie gets caught in the elevator. And he's going to get killed. He's going to get strangled by the elevators. It's pulling his tie. And he realizes, I've got those scissors. And he cuts the, he cuts the tie with the scissors. And then he goes running back to the old man. He goes, hey, old man, tell me what I need next. <laughs> and, of course, it doesn't end well because he demands the old man give him what he needs. Right. I remember that but episode. I feel, yeah. I kind of feel like, uh, I kind of feel like, there have been people that have been handing me a pair of scissors all along the way, like my violin teachers when I was in grade four or Mrs. Brown when I was sitting at the piano going boing, you know, or when like I, I hear, you know, I, somebody gave me a, a copy of the Lincoln's album, you know, and it's like, oh, by the way, here's your future. That's so cool. You know, and I, like all the way along, I like I never wanted to be a professional musician. I love it that much. But people keep on phoning me and I don't have any time to look for a job. <laughs> no. OK, I, so ha- it's, I have to wrap this up, but okay. I do want to finish because, you, you know, you impressed me as a very optimistic person who's had this pretty fascinating life both musically and non-musically. And you, you seem to have that philosophy that you learned very young and you've kind of kept to it. We're going through a bit of a rough time right now. How do you view the world after? Well, I'm really, I, I think I'm very fortunate. I realize how fortunate I am um, to have uh, the the life that I have and the, and the career that I've had. That being said, um, I've been talking to the sober, serious people in lab coats. Right. And it looks like things are going to be on a long, long, long pause. And things might be very different for a very long time or maybe, maybe forever. But I've I've operated from two I've I've got two sort of operating modes that I think have done well for me and among my colleagues and my friends who who thrive they they tend to do the same thing. Uh one is that um they play a long game, a really long game. And I've always I've always played a super duper long game. It's so long that it's not over yet. Right. So I don't know what's next. So I'm kind of I'm playing the longest game possible. And I'm operating with very few expectations. And I'm prepared to be spontaneous. Right. And I also I also know that um, I know it's going to be okay, whatever that means, because like expectations uh, is a little aphorism for you. Expectations are premeditated resentments. Hmm. So I try to go in with as few expectations as possible, and that way you can be nimble and you can be spontaneous and you can. Uh, you can react to things without your um, 
reflexes being clouded by a predetermined outcome. Right. And I think if you're in this particular instance, like I'm playing a long game that consists of at least two years because I am a male of a certain age with a couple of pre-existing conditions. So for me to be out there doing anything, whether it's being a Walmart greeter or playing the saxophone at somebody's wedding, that's not going to end well for me, possibly, right. unless there's a vaccine, unless there's a, a stopgap measure, right? So until that's in place and they're saying, optimistically, could be a year, optimistically, could be a year and a half, realistically, maybe two years or maybe never, right? And they're saying that this could be a cyclical thing. Right. It will definitely be a cyclical thing until some kind of herd immunity happens through vaccines or just eventually that enough people have been infected with it. And so I kind of go, okay, well, I guess I'll just sit here with my cat with, you know, several months worth of non-perishables and my remote recording setup and, um, and wait it out, you know. And you're still teaching. Uh, I am. Um, I have I have a few students, and as this as people get their footing, I imagine I'll get a few more. Um, there's also, um, as people get their footing, I think uh, there'll be more recording. I know that there's going to be stuff like jingles, and uh, and people with project. There's a friend of mine on the West Coast who's who's done rather well with a. Uh, a Roy Oberson show and that's now been um, put on ice for the time being, but he did rather well. He's got a lot of material he wants to record. And so I'm going to be working on that project. There's a few people online that have already approached me. There's a collaborative thing with Paul Pigat, who's a fantastic guitar player in Vancouver. He just opened up a Dropbox for a collaborative thing with him and uh, Kevin Bright so I've started putting those things on my computer and, and figuring out what I'm going to do with them. Um, yeah, so there's, there's lots of things. I just upgraded my home recording setup so that basically now I've got a, I've got a world-class recording setup for anyone's purposes. Wow. For me to do whatever it is that I do for them. Right. Gene, I'm going to have to wrap this up, but thank you so much for taking this time. Um, it's been a pleasure. I, 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 thank you so much for asking me to have a chat. It, it's, it's been nice uh, meeting you again. Yes, albeit, uh, it's been a while. Virtually. But hopefully yeah. one of these days we'll meet face to face again. Yeah, when this is over, we're going for a beer. <laughs> All right. You take care of yourself and um, we'll, we'll chat soon. Thanks, brother. Thank you. Thank you.